Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, November 17th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. We, uh, we had an interlude yesterday in which we uh, discussed elevated matters like the condition uh, of the war in between Russia and Ukraine, um, uh, Iran, and the, the status of foreign policy in, in, in the 21st century. So now we're just back to rank punditry. We didn't really talk about Trump's announcement speech. Uh, on Monday night or Tuesday night, or I can't remember what night it was. Was it Tuesday night? It was Tuesday night. Sorry, it feels like it was a it was like a year and a half ago, which, by the way, probably speaks to something in the quality of the speech. Uh, it was not a good speech, but then he's not somebody who gives speeches per se. So this was a very weird moment. And uh, everybody is saying it's low energy. My question is, uh, nobody remembers announcement speeches. I mean, you remember them when they go bad, like sort of Hillary's weird thing where she did it on Roosevelt Island at the Four Freedoms Park, and it somehow just didn't didn't go well. Um, but, I mean, nobody really remembers these moments. Uh, well, so, wait. Yeah, but, but we remember we remember these moments when he does them. We we, the we everyone, everyone re- refers back to the escalator. Yeah, but right. So there's. I just want to say people are retconning the escalator because when he came down the escalator, um, everybody in the you know everybody said, "What the hell is this? This is bizarre. Look at this. He's coming down an escalator. This is this is peculiar and strange." Um, and I, but I don't think it was, I don't think the escalator is what made that moment a moment. What made that speech a moment was when basically he said that, you know, uh, Mexican, Mexicans were all drug dealers or whatever, whatever. I mean, he said this, you know, very offensive thing about Mexicans. And then we were off to the races. I don't think the, the dramaturgy was just, you're seeing something that you've never seen before and having a, having a speech in a ballroom, is something we've seen before 10 billion times, whether the ballroom was guilt or not. Like, you know, that's where people give speeches is in ballrooms, you know, at the, at the national, you know, horseshoe manufacturers association. I, I still think, I mean, I agree, but I, I still think he himself is somehow, and I hate to say this is somehow compelling. Um, I, I, and I agree the speech was boring and not special, but because he's weird and because he says things and does things that you don't see that you haven't seen before, especially in the con- now that he's in a, a, a political co- context and, and you certainly don't see it in this world, um, it somehow makes for some sort of version of compelling viewing. It's compelling in the same way a trapeze artist is compelling. You're always waiting for them to slip. And that's exactly what was happening. <clears throat> the speech began. He was very... He was trying. You were you could see beads of sweat forming on his head as he tried to rein his own instincts in. Be very disciplined, stick to the teleprompter. And then he would he would try to ad lib a little bit, and you could see him physically pull himself in. And that's when the cable nets kept cut away. And every Trump apologist, every Trump supporters, look how disciplined the guy is. And then the speech went on for another 60 minutes, at which point well, 30 he stopped minutes, being yeah. disciplined. He stopped well, reining himself in. He would read a line and then do three minutes of extemp and joke and josh and talk about how we're going to execute drug dealers and talk about how great China's justice system in, is. And then he'd go back to the speech. He want his his people wanted him to be disciplined, and he cannot be disciplined. He knows he should be disciplined, who, but he's incapable of it. Well, but what and, and people, the, what there was evidence. Does he have? 
Evidently, they were also whoever they were. They were evidently everybody who cut away from, from the speech leaving. on Hannity's panel. Okay, yeah. Well, and they and they were trying. People were actually trying to exit the ballroom. Evidently, at some point, and they the security is like, "You must stay penned in and listen to this man." We have to give a shout out to our friends at the New York Post, who did the best bit of journalism, journalistic coverage of this event of any newspaper ever in the history of the world by titling it by by having no bylines, just by a post staffer and saying. Florida man makes announcement and just absolutely mocking. You know, he's come out of retirement. He likes to play golf. It was perfect because okay. the spectacle that he wanted is not landing the way that he or who, whoever has designed this uh, effort expected it to land. So I wrote about this a little bit for for MSNBC. And I, I while I appreciated that, there is an element to all coverage of this speech from, on left and right and mainstream press and the alternative press that is attempting to shape outcomes. They do not trust you. They do not trust this moment. The Washington Post or the New York Times is fact checking him dubiously. The Washington Post has to have this litany of all his grievances and offenses and sins against constitutional propriety. The New York Post, even in applying this attempt at dispassion, is being passionate. See, I thought they, they were mocking him for being a loser. I they actually are, got but it. that I, is I passion. That is investment. That is an attempt to shape outcomes. Okay. They are not covering him like a real candidate. And they can't. Maybe they can't. He doesn't make it easy on you. But it's that passion that fuels the, mo the movement. Dispassion is where the movement leaks out like a balloon. But nobody can be dispassionate about the guy. Maybe it's impossible. Right. <clears throat> You're saying his people want him to stay on message and do the, you know, the, the text of the speech. His people don't want that. That's not what they want. <laughs> they want they want Trump who says, you know what? They do it great in China. They arrest a drug dealer. They try him at 10 o'clock in the morning. They shoot him at three o'clock in the afternoon. Obviously, we can't do that here, but they don't have any drug dealers there. That's what they want. They don't want Trump talking about how we need to be respected in the world. I mean, maybe they do whatever every every. Everyone who will take on Biden as an incumbent will say much of what Trump said in the speech, in the part of the speech that wasn't extemporaneous. They will say that he, he has cost us respect. They will say that his his actions in Afghanistan led to um, a, a less safe America and that led gave Putin the green light to go into Russia and uh, go into Ukraine and stuff like that. They will talk about inflation. They will talk about energy. They will talk about efforts to suppress our uh, domestic energy production and all of that. So, in that sense, it was a completely generic approach to running against an incumbent president. Clinton used it in '91 in his and '92 in his uh, assault on George W. Bush. The last time a one-term a president was uh, limited to one term, and so did uh, Reagan when he took on. Carter, you just say, okay, here are the problems in America, economic, foreign policy, you know, domestic order. And then you just say, it's his fault. It's his fault. It's his fault. Bring me in. I'm going to have to solve the problems that he created, but at least I'll solve them. And he, and he can't, um, that's not Trump's secret sauce. No, Trump's secret sauce is what he said twice that I actually don't think is going to land the same way it landed in 2016. He said it twice. He said, I am a victim. I am a victim. Those were the as soon as he said that, I thought that's the point at which I actually think even not as diehard supporters, obviously they're with him. But a lot of the Republican Party listened to that. Those two that sentence repeated twice and thought, oh, here we go again. And I'm not saying that as I mean, never Trumpers are, you know, I'm talking about that vast middle, the people who probably voted for him in 2016, didn't love him, but thought he's a fighter, all that. But that is what is distinguishing going to distinguish him from the rest of the GOP contenders in 2024, in my opinion. Look, uh, we have let me let me just give you a sort of data point, because Trump's obviously sui generis. But um, in the Washington third congressional district, uh, which uh, was uh, won by a Democrat, Marie Perez, for the first time in 12, uh, Democrat won the seat for the first time in 12 years against Joe Kent, who was basically a stop the steal Trump, you know, touched. Uh, candidate Trump wanted to go at the incumbent um, Jamie Herrera Butler because she voted for impeachment and 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 got her in a complicated way. No one went into 
the other day. So the <clears throat> net result in that race, okay, is that uh, there was a pretty good Republican senatorial candidate, uh, Tiffany Smiley, who who said uh, a candidate who didn't, um, you know, who who basically did not give Patty Murray the incumbent a race, though people hoped that she would. But listen to this thing from the Seattle Times. Kent's totals in the third district were running about 5% below the GOP Senate candidate, Tiffany Smiley. Glusenkamp Perez, that's the person who won the race, was getting about 4% more votes in the district than Democratic U.S. Senator Patty Murray. Evidence that a slice of Smiley voters split their tickets and declined to back Kent. Now, this is the first very specific piece of evidence that... Republican voters literally would not vote for a Trump candidate in a district that Trump won by three and a half percent in 2020. And that has been a Republican district since the earthquake of or the, you know, whatever, the what was it that Obama called 2010? The something it was a lacking shellacking. Right. <clears throat> so was it. So uh, basically there were five successive elections in which Republicans won. She, Jamie Herrera Butler, won won the race there um, by you know in a in a district easily in a district that Trump won by three point six, and Republican voters gave the victory to to the Democrat either by not voting for Kent or by vote or by crossing the lines and voting for for Paris or Glusenkamp Paris. So what does that tell us? It tells us that something very significant is going on here. And that, as I keep saying, Trump seems actively to be a kind of vote repellent. And we have at least one district where if you peel back the data, you see that. So the thing that would make him less of a voter repellent is staying on the message, right? Biden, I have to come back in and help you and clean things up because he's made such a mess of it. But uh, that, that is not what his people want to hear. That is like him performing the B-sides at his at his greatest hits concert and not performing the hits. The hits are attacking illegal, you know, aliens. The hits are attacking, you know, talking about Stop the Steal. The hits are musing on, you know, on on ways in which you can sort of extra extra legally you know uh, take people down <clears throat> you know if you have to so he's at a weird cross he's he's got a he's got a bind here because if he's not he knows i think if he's not trump then he doesn't generate <clears throat> the fervor that will scare other people away from running or attacking him directly but if he if he generates the fervor He's got that 5% of voters in the Washington 3rd Congressional District who are not going to vote for any Republican if he's if his if he opens his mouth and starts talking about killing drug dealers the way China kills drug dealers. But there's a further bind, which is that so if he if he touches on the hits, yeah, conceivably he can get nominated. The hits are exactly what will keep him from getting elected. Right. I mean, there were so other, there are other examples yeah. of this. Um, the Washington Post has a really great uh, infographic and the extent to which the the country did actually experience a red wave is visible. Um, there were there were 10, 5, 10, 15 point shifts in more districts than Democrats got. But there were a lot of places where candidate quality really mattered, like Marcy Captor's district, which went 15 points in the other direction. Now, gerrymandering, what have you, redistricting, what have you, that doesn't account for this kind of shift. J.R. Majewski accounts for this kind of shift in a state right. that Republicans won at the top of the ticket to a uh, to a prohibitive degree, um, even though uh, J.D. Vance, I think, underperformed um, Mike DeWine by something like 10, 11 points. I think it was Thank 11 you. points. Yeah, right. So so that even there you have that, right? DeWine's at the top of the ticket gets wins almost by 20 almost by the same amount that that DeSantis won in Florida. Vance wins by 8, so he's 11 points off 
uh, or 10, whatever it is, 11 and a half points off DeWine. And Majewski loses his race. Uh, wait, Majewski was in Michigan, right? I'm, or, or am I confused? No. Marcy Captor's race. Marcy Captor, but right. Okay, anyway. Um, but he loses. So we have you know 20 plus 20 to plus eight to loss in the same state. And obviously, that district, I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but that district probably went for DeWine, even as it was going for Captor. Because I, I assume if you win by 20, you basically win everywhere in the state. So it's a very... So we have all I'm saying is we now have hard data uh, to suggest that 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 Trump or Trumpism or election taught whatever is a drag, but it is what his people want to hear. So I'm not going to predict anything. I'm out of the prediction business. I keep saying I'm not going to predict anything. I'm just saying that you look at things and uh, the order of battle, the order of battle does not favor Trump. That doesn't mean that Trump doesn't favor Trump or that the order of battle is going to be something that Republican primary voters are going to pay much attention to. They may not, you know, uh, and countries, you know, march off to wars they can't possibly win out of pride and foolishness. But there you are, Abe. Can we talk about DeSantis's first response to Trump? Because uh, he was he was asked about uh, Trump's attacks on him at a press conference, um, and I thought his answer was pretty brilliant and effective. Um, a reporter had asked, you know, had said, "Well, the, the Trump has attacked you a few times. Now, do you have a response?" And uh, he said, "Look, I get attacked all the time <clears throat> uh, by the media. I'm probably the most." attacked governor that there's been uh but when you do this job it's about it's about being effective and getting results and um showing what you can accomplish and the rest is just noise and i thought it was great he never actually even uh called trump by name he in fact lumped him in with the press um and moved on uh in a way that very effectively allowed him to sort of sail above it I guess the real the real thing is so Trump has now declared, you know, 450 days or so, you know, some ridiculous number of days before that people will actually vote in a primary or appear in a caucus. So a lot of what happens from here on in will be how Trump responds to unforeseen events. And there are going to be plenty of unforeseen events. And will he catch lightning in a bottle? because something happens and the Biden people say something stupid and Trump is the first person to jump out and say, that is not what you should be saying about this thing that just happened. You should be saying X. And this just shows how out of touch and bad you are. <laughs> and, you know, if he does that five times, uh, if he's first on Truth Social, with a response or he gets up and makes some, you know, he records some video, sends it out there that even, you know, gets on other social media from wh where he is, uh, you know, theoretically banned just through like, you know, reposting and all of that, you know, he could, he could slide himself into a lane while, you know, DeSantis and others are saying, I'm not, you know, it's too early for me. Like I'm not, I'm not going yet. But a lot of people, I think, make their decisions far later in the game in terms of presidential primaries and, and debates, you know, do matter a bit in terms of how how people perform. And I, I've heard I've read a few few stories in the past few weeks that say, oh, well, this is this is where you people who think Trump is toast are, are wrong because he's going to get up on that stage. He's going to belittle Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis will you know, crumble under under this, you know, excoriation by Trump. He'll call him, you know, whatever, some horrible nickname. Um, and maybe that's the case. But I actually think given what we saw in this midterm election, both the turnout and the very, you know, strategic um, punishment of certain kinds of Republicans over others, I don't think being a little bit dull is bad and is going to be bad in this election cycle. You don't want to be senile or or appear to be senile or confused on, on the Democratic side, like Biden can easily be accused of being. 
but the bombast, I mean, he it, it's exciting as entertainment, but things aren't working in this country for a lot of Americans and they want it fixed. And I think at the at the national level, you want someone who's going to address that and also say, look, here's how I fix this problem in my state, for example, or here in the Senate. And Trump can't really do that. He can point to certain things in his record, but he's very focused on the grievance. He's very focused on the elite bashing, which was always his always his lane. I'm not sure people who are still facing inflation, um, you know, instability, things that don't work in their lives, uh, you know, structural issues with their kids' schools. I don't think that's going to speak to them. Now, Let he me, has to get it's the primary voters are the problem, right. obviously, but even primary voters are experiencing these things. Look, one other way of looking at it is to say that uh, DeSantis or who everybody um, can kill him with kindness, oddly. Think about this. You say <clears throat> you did so you look, you did a lot of great stuff. Those Abraham Accords, amazing. They were great. Like uh, opening up oil fields exploration. Thank warp you so speed, much. Operation Warp Speed. War, Operation Warp Speed was great. But, you know, that was like, that was, that was, a, it was a while ago. Things have changed. We got inflation. We got, F, we got Ukraine. We got this. We got that. I honor your service. You did a lot of good things for this country. I don't think that what you did after the election was really smart. I don't think that was good for the party. It wasn't good for the country. You know, we're dealing with the wreckage. I understand that you may have had feelings like this. I just don't think it was really helpful. Trump himself will really help, got to help. Trump himself will help along those lines. Uh, you could tell where his enthusiasm and passions lie in the course of that speech. The Abraham Accords was a, a afterthought. He kind of actually almost skipped over it and then just kind of and then talked about it very briefly in part because that's Jared's achievement. And he doesn't really have a lot of affection for Jared, according to reports these days. What he liked to talk about was the wall that he built, which he didn't build, but he likes to talk about how he built it. And what he got really enthusiastic about is reforming American elections because of that other election, which he kind of obliquely referred to, but knew he couldn't actually talk about. But you all know, yeah. everybody knows, this is what he wants to talk about. That's what he wants to engage paper, ballot, paper ballots, paper ballots and same day voting, because, you know, in France, they knew the election results in two hours. You know, what's different about France from the United States. I said this the other day. Thirty six million votes. Yeah. Right. We had one hundred and fifty five Texas. <laughs> OK, number one. Number two, we have thirty three hundred and nine counties, I believe, at last count in the United States. And many of them require their own separate ballots if they have local initiatives and things like that. So if you're France and you have one ballot, it's the same ballot in Marseille as it is in Lyon. Counting them is really easy when you have several thousand different ballots as we do. First of all, we have different ballots in 50 states. We don't count nationally. We count locally. That's in the Constitution, all that. You can't create a unified system in which you only have paper ballots. Look, New York State, when I was growing up, didn't have a paper ballot. It had this funky, fantastic machine with levers and things. It was so much fun. You pushed buttons and you pulled levers and you slid a big, like, you know, arm. Like, you didn't fill out a paper ballot. There was no paper ballot in the what was then the second largest state in the United States. This is all preposterous. You know, what are we going to do? Like, go back to having stones in a cup, like in Athens? Like, the, you know, give me a give me a break here. Yeah, I mean, that rings the bells of maybe a million people in the country who are consumed with this idea. And then there are 154 million other voters at the national level in a presidential who couldn't give a, who couldn't, you know, couldn't care 10,000 wits for any of this. And that's where he can go off the rails, right? I mean, so in 2015, 2016, you can say he had his eye on a population set in the United States that other Republicans simply didn't understand was a kind of f a festering wound or a, you know, sort of like a bubbling, you know, tar pit that you could, that could explode outward and really, and help him and tar his rivals. But there is no indication that he has that feel in the same way because, you know, you, you, conditions are different and 
you know, not to go with the ridiculous but constantly. It's like he came in, no one ever saw his pitch before. He had a fastball like no one ever saw. But you know, you need three pitches to be a great pitcher. You need you need to be able to, you know, throw a changeup and throw a slider and throw a curveball. And if you only have a fastball, at some point, you know, like the opposing teams figure you out and and uh you know like can 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 hit against you. So that's the thing about him on on Tuesday was Mike Huckabee, whoever else was on Fox, you know, um, you know, the the sort of the the Politburo, the Trump Zenovia of Politburo is like, yes, yes, go like this, talk like this. This will help you. Don't talk the other way. You know, I mean, he he doesn't do it well. He doesn't he he had the lyrics but he didn't have the music he doesn't know how to do it he sounded like he wanted to go to sleep when he was selling the message that would actually get somebody to win in 2024 which is that biden is doing things badly his policies are bad and he some of that is because of bad ideology that also needs to be combated but you got to talk about it practically also i want to talk about a politician who talks about things practically and it is very Exciting. Dan Senor, Call Me Back podcast. You've heard me talk about it so many times before. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, go subscribe. Dan has an amazing podcast up right now. First interview with Bibi Netanyahu returning, as Trump would like to return, for the third time as prime minister uh, in his career. Um, although Trump would also be only be returning for the second time. But let's say it's returning for the third time as premier. First interview uh, in conjunction with his book, which has just been published, BB Story, and it is newsbreaking. Among other things, he talks about the Abraham Accords and their extension to Saudi Arabia and what it would mean if Saudi Arabia comes in and officially joins the Abraham Accords and changes the nature of the of world politics. Um, talks about his goals and and uh, uh, very focused on normalizing relations with the Saudis. And hints at a change in Israel's approach to the war in Ukraine, where Israel has been very ginger about about siding with, or uh, though it sides with Ukraine, but about you know providing actual serious support to the Ukrainian effort because it has this complex relationship with Russia in terms of what's going on in the air over Syria and various other things. Uh, it's news breaking. It's groundbreaking. It is as in uh, you know it is as entrancing as uh, Bibi Netanyahu can be when he's on his game, and it should calm a lot of the. I think it will calm a lot of the fears down among people who think that this election in Israel is somehow the harbinger of democratic doom in the Jewish state. Uh, so that's the Dancing Our podcast right now. Interview with Bibi Netanyahu, first interview since he since he took back the premiership. Go listen, go download, go subscribe. You'll be really, really happy that you did. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, Knows free speech makes free people. Fire will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. So uh, Republicans have secured the House. It looks like they'll probably win a net maybe around 10, between 8 and 10 seats. They will have netted, um, uh, possibly ending up in exactly the same configuration in reverse as the democratic house was in the last two years 222 to 213 um i still say it doesn't matter that much what the numbers are if the if the republican caucus holds together it's there simply as a check and a back a check on democratic legislative ambitions so it could be 260 it could be 225 it could be 219 if they all hold together i mean you need a margin because people can get sick and not be there or whatever 
and they don't have much of a margin. They'll have a, you know, what is it, a four seat margin. But nonetheless, you know, they, they don't they can't do anything creatively, really, because there's a Democratic president, Democratic Senate. Um, so I think the job is done. Uh, and now there's all this talk about what's going on inside the House Republican caucus. Uh, no, you're interested in that. And as I keep saying, I find it. I don't care. They all suck. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy stinks and whoever would face him stinks and whoever's running the new whip uh, is uh, is the guy who did such a horrible job with the Republican uh, Congressional Campaign Committee. So that's really great because you get rewarded for, you know, bungling, bungling your way through the election. Uh, so they stink. And uh, and then there was this ludicrous challenge to Mitch McConnell by 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 uh, by Rick Scott, who did such a fantastic job with the senatorial campaign committee. Um, uh, the scariest looking person in American politics, Rick Scott, like the idea that he would be an improvement visually on the, you know, turtle turtle like Mitch McConnell. To have this, like, you know, guy who's a combination of Lurch and, you know, uh, and Henry portrait of a serial killer, uh, you know, on your TVs every Sunday. Uh, and, of course, did an absolutely horrifically bad job uh, on the Senatorial Campaign Committee, whereas, you know, McConnell is maybe the greatest tactician in American politics, has been the greatest congressional tactician since Sam Rayburn or something like that. So, Noah. You like this granular stuff. Te explain to me why I should care what's going on in the house. No, so, I you, will not. You're not going to explain. Explain it to you me. Have, you have completely convinced me that this is utterly meaningless, a waste hey. of my intellectual energy, and <gasps> I will do no such thing. You broke his spirit, John. You broke I his spirit. Broken How dare you? you? <laughs> I have. I've turned you into a cynic. Um, no, you're right. It really doesn't matter. There's. It's just. It was fun to watch the. Uh, I think you actually disagree with me about the sequence of events, but I'm convinced that this is the sequence of events, <laughs> that there was a um, a palace coup planned uh, by the insurgents who were running on a Trumpy platform in the Senate. They were, called, they were you know, head up on their own ascension, which is why Blake Masters, who was behind at the time and was unlikely to win at the time, led this attack on Mitch McConnell as though he was uh, in a position to do so. Um in the Senate, Senate uh, majority race, where they did have an election yesterday uh, in inside the Republican Senate conference. And they went ahead with it anyway, after a lot of back and forth between um, Rick Scott's people, who is the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial uh, uh, Committee, and Mitch McConnell, spilled out into the streets, really ugly, open warfare. And um, Rick Scott took a took a shot at Mitch McConnell and missed. And he's now going to face the whirlwind. Now they're the his successor and the organizational members of the National Senatorial Committee are talking about auditing Rick Scott's dismal performance. And there's a lot of commentary about the extent to which he used this position in a very in a way that was self-dealing, in a way to advance his own political prospects at the expense of the Senate majority. I think it's worth looking into this sort of thing. Um, but the degree to which they're clearly out to mete out punishment for this attempted putsch um, is is fun to watch because it's it's deserved. Uh, Rick, Rick Scott got way out over his skis. He has a very high opinion of himself. He sees a president when he looks in the mirror or at least he sees a Senate majority leader. And um, he doesn't have a real clear grasp of his own position within the conference, let alone the, the Republican ecosystem broadly. And hopefully this reminds him a little bit of uh, his reduced stature. That's some mirror that he's got, because anybody else would look in that mirror and see a villain in a Blumhouse production. I mean, that is not visually the, the portrait of an American president. <laughs> that you were going to want to see. And even Rick Scott should sort of understand that. I assume that his, um, you know, his, his decision to have, you know, to, to look the way that he does is in part um, a, a, a visual referent to his being someone you shouldn't mess with. Uh, the one thing about him is he made a lot of money. He's a billionaire. So, you know, he didn't need to steal money from the senatorial, you know, committee, whatever that, that audit uh, would be. 
But, um, you know, the thing about these jobs, people, you know, it's all we're firing Pelosi. Uh, you know, Pelosi is fired. American people didn't fire Pelosi. Pelosi is voted on by a group of 435 people. Like, that's how Pelosi becomes speaker, a vote of 435 people, plus being voted on in her very safe left-wing district uh, in San Francisco. Well, in her fate, she she's said she's going to announce today whether she'll uh, still want to be a leader in, in, you know, the minority leadership. But, but you know, I have to it's say... Easy that, out like, for her, I think. Like, between the husband all, a, not and the only, Not only is it an easy out, she promised... She, she yeah. promised that this was her last term. Mm-hmm. She will be screwing people in her caucus. Oh, she'd totally do that, though. I mean, that's, you know. I mean, I, I don't she, think she look, looks in a mirror and sees a woman in her 80s. I think she looks in the no, mirror. But, and sees- I, but uh, the woman in her 80s thing, right? The thing is, like, you know, she is fantastic at this job. Well, I, I mean, I'd argue she was for, for many, for a very long time, and she lost her edge during the Trump years. I think she really I, lost her strategic edge. I mean, she managed, I mean, I guess, but, you know, the act of making sure that every single person in your caucus votes the way you want them to vote. Now, maybe that is, you know, plausible in our time now of negative polarization and nationalized politics, but that didn't use even to be theoretically possible. Because you had a lot of cross currents. I was thinking about this last night. You know, 30, 40 years ago, it's not just that there were regional differences, but that there were differences within the regions. I'm thinking of how, you know, there are no, there's no longer, I mean, there's kind of this weird, every now and then there are, there are candidates like, like Charlie Baker and stuff like that. But, you know, there are no longer Northeastern or let's say New England or Yankee Republicans. There used to be, a whole contingent of them, but well, there were cross I, currents in within them. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but what if Republicans were smart and they looked yeah. at where they won today, they would be looking at New York, right? They would be looking at California. They would yeah. be looking at these states that are written off at a national level and dismissed right. and attacked and derided because the political cultures there are so inimical to to actually, uh, you know, good sound conservative governance. Right, it's not true. Yeah. But my point here is that the point I was going to make is that in among New England Republicans, there were big cross currents like there were green eye shade, you know, hysterical budget balancing. You know, you shouldn't spend more than you make. That was like Warren Rudman, the senator from New Hampshire. You had liberal Republicans, a lot of whom were in the Republican Party because they would have been Democrats, but they were disgusted by the compromise with segregationists in the South that was part of the FDR coalition. So you had generations of Republicans in the Northeast who were socially liberal and integrationist, and they were therefore in, you know, that was like the the tradition of uh, Jack Javits in New York, obviously not a, uh, not a New England uh, person, but um, Jim Jeffords, uh, you know, uh, various other people. So there were there were like cross even regionally there were different pressures like these guys weren't budget balancing green eye shade Republicans that that was that was a different uh, tendency and now you have a nationalized politics in which you can take some piece of legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act and just say here we're all voting on this we are all voting on this you are voting on this or I will destroy you like that's a weird thing. That is not that does not suit American political tradition, which was there's a lot of horse trading. And and the horse trading kind of ended a little bit. I mean, there was some horse trading between between Biden and Joe Manchin on the Inflation Reduction Act that screwed Joe Manchin. Right. But one thing that Pelosi, well, one thing Pelosi did figure out very quickly, which was important for a little while, although I'm not sure she effectively uh, controlled them, was to realize that the squad's uh, circuitous route to fame, like to go using social media as a platform rather than seeing themselves as junior members who needed to pay their dues in order to, you know, work their way up through the ranks. She she figured out early on, okay, I'll pose on the cover of Rolling Stone with them, but these children don't know how to govern and are going to be a thorn in my side and are going to have these stupid stunts 
stunts that they do that gain a lot of social media attention, but mean nothing or actually actively undermine what we're trying to do as Democrats in Congress. And she was very skillful at that, particularly at the beginning. I do not think she adequately called them out for their anti-Semitism. Um, this this is a this is continues to be a problem with her with her caucus. But she did understand that in a way that I think on the Republican side. Too many of the leaders on the Republican side reveled in the social media attention of these, you know, a lot of these, you know, crazy fringe new members of Congress. I mean, I think the, the problem there on both sides is that you there is no horse trading with them. So they can't be tamed um, because so because there there is no hope for um, deal making um and uh moderation or or they're they're they're, they're, they're all not there to govern they're not right. there to govern and and that <laughs> yes well i mean horse trading like like uh, alexandria ocasio-cortez is the opposite of a horse trader amazon wanted to come into her district and provide twenty five thousand jobs and she drove them out of her district i don't know that that has ever and boasted about in it the history of american it. politics but that is somebody whose incentive structure is so radically different from any politician that came before her that it's very hard to know what it is that you would have to do to please her or suit her or bring her into your larger coalition. You know, she's just, she's, she's up to something else. It's very, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's interesting. It's um, pernicious is what it is, it, it, what it is, what she's up to. <laughs> I mean, she is up to something pernicious, but it does, it, I'm just saying like, uh, you know, the just like with Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and people like that, like the ordinary presumptions of what it is that people want and is in their own, you know, best interest or in their own self-interest. And um, these calculations have now shifted because of social media, because of this kind of insta celebrity stuff. And it's a new game. And, uh, you know, conventional politics says you know, you got somebody who's a troublemaker as the famous episode for me, famous, not anybody else in America, but me and like five people famous episode of the odd couple where Felix and Oscar are on ship on, on board a ship and Felix is being an incredible pest. And the captain gives Felix a whistle uh, and says, you're now our social director. And Oscar says to the captain, what are you doing? And he says, let me tell you something. When I got a troublemaker, I give him a whistle that that's so it's like you give them a whistle. You know, you give them you give them something, you pat them on the head and you send them away. And there's no way to pat them on the head and send them away with the whistle isn't what they want. So it's an so you know, this is a whole different set of calculations. But in the end, by the way, these jobs like the speaker, Senate majority leader, the whip, all that, you know, these are hard, thankless, time consuming, exhausting jobs. And most people don't want them. Like, this is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll figure out the schedule for, you know, when to do meal prep on the camp, you know, on the on the school camping trip. Like, who wants that job? Got to get people to agree to take, you know, bring bring food, take out the garbage, you know, help, you know, who's going to stay behind to do cleanup. Like, you don't want to be. Yeah, but then there, there's a certain class of people. They love that and they're willing to do that. And most people sort of like give in to them because it's like if they didn't, they would have to. So it's like, you know, Rick Scott thinks he wants to be Senate majority leader or the head of the Republican Party in the Senate. No, he doesn't. Mitch McConnell has to like sit there. He's 80 years old, like late at night, like moving little pieces around a board to figure out how he's going to get this one to do that, where they're going to do uh, this kind of vote or how they're going to. Yeah, blah, blah, committee of the whole, you know, discharge petitions and yeah, whatever is going to go on in the house. The whip is figuring out how to time votes and who's going to be where. Like this, these jobs are terrible unless you're a very OCD, very anal person who really enjoys like filing and doing cleanup and all of that. So every time you hear that somebody wants to challenge somebody, just put keep in mind that it's a very specific kind of person who does a job like this well. And Nancy Pelosi is such a person and the, you know, obviously personally reprehensible uh, Danny Hastert was such a person. And there are people who are who are pretty good at this and and then there are people who just want, you know, think it's a great way to get on TV and if you give them the job it's going to be terrible.
All right. Uh, we should move on, and I'm not sure where we should move on to. Noah, what what do you want to talk about? No? Okay. This is the second time you've put me on the spot today. I don't know. Like I, I <laughs> We could talk about how about Karen everything. Bass Karen Bass won in LA, which was after getting a run for her money from a former Republican turned in, you know, basically Republican okay. and Democratic. So line. so uh LA is like falling off a cliff. New York City falling off a cliff. At least the candidate in New York City was the candidate of I'm gonna clean things up even though he's not cleaning anything up. They had a candidate for cleaning things up in LA and they went the other way with with with, with Karen Bass. Your city, Christine Muriel Bowser reelected is now like planning to decriminalize Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't know, you know like rape, hitting someone over the head, assault, the, yeah, murder, rape, assault, carjacking, you name yeah, it. Any gun, people, any yeah. gun offense, any gun offense, you know, yeah. let's let let's make all those crimes let's make them serve less time. Cuz you know, in the midst of a crime increase crime got so out of hand in the united states in the late 80s early 90s that we had this snapback and this you know radical revision to the to the direction that the country was going in on crime more cops more the you know broken windows giuliani all of that okay so that was a that was a shift started in the early 90s really accelerated around 94 so we have cities falling into these terrible conditions so the question is, is this 1972 when like pe- movies start getting made like Dirty Harry and Death Wish and stuff like that, that are the portraits of cities in chaos, but it takes another generation for the, for the disaster to be so inescapable that the populaces themselves allow the conditions to change and and crime to be dealt with see i or think is it's... it not or is it 1989 and see, there's only five it, more years the, the, and then the, the change comes the strange factor here though and this is true and certainly true in san francisco but in a lot of these cities including dc there's still not we're still not actually functioning as a city because there's so many people still working remotely the downtown still does not have the foot traffic and the street traffic that it usually does whether I think that's actually one of the factors. Can can these cities first of all, this affects revenue? Like you're not going to be collecting taxes on these empty, you know, empty buildings that no longer have workers in them. The workers are not buying their lunch on the, you know, at the place around the corner from their office. So there's a there's a sort of macroeconomic impact here, but there's a real eyes on the street impact. I see it in DC every day when I in certain parts of the of the city that become like like so you're saying, will we have dirty Harry? No, we might actually get to a weird thing where Rich people who can afford to leave and go elsewhere, they might still do business in certain cities, but they're not going in there every day. Their workers are not coming in every day. They're also safely remote. And every night it becomes the purge. So it's like people yeah, just or withdraw. Or escape from New York, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that yeah. actually seems to be a more likely scenario for a lot of these cities, unfortunately, including my own. Um, You know, that's not going to get better anytime soon. Like, again, all these indications are we're going to recession in 2023. That's not going to be, oh, boy, everyone's coming back to work in the center city. We're going to have we're going to have, you know, serious layoffs uh, and not just of, you know, we're not going to have serious layoffs of entry level service workers because everybody needs those. We're going to have layoffs of middle management. No, people. But you can have local local increases in minimum wage or tipping legislation like yeah. we've had here in D.C. that drives up the cost of employing people. And so that's right. going to have an impact on whether those even those service workers will be able to find jobs. Yeah, um, okay. I, I think so, there is. Uh, yeah. This is not the 90s because in part because um, one of the messages that democrats took away from this is that eh, crime doesn't voters don't care about crime they're wrong but that but that's that's what they took right but the funny thing is so nationally as i said crime was not an issue where crime is a problem crime was an issue it was not enough in a lot of these places to overturn the structural democratic advantages in New York State, at the gubernatorial level, in LA, at the mayoral level. But wait, this but is a self fulfilling. But the voter shift was really. I mean, yeah, this, this is, is a self fulfilling prophecy because the people who were animated by crime left. They went to Florida. Well, a lot of them, but, Arizona, but a lot of them are Texas. Right. right. No, that's part of it, but it's also that they did. I mean, that's a broader. That's a that's yeah. a more compelling signal because that's the tax base. 
it's not just about votes. Yeah. That's a tax base. That's right. your livability. That's your uh, mediating institutions and social cohesion. That's, that's a broad, that's a more visible signal in a way than electoral votes. I mean, this is the, the, the high yeah, of but this. That happened, the the 70s, fate. that happened in the seventies and eighties too. It's something I like I'm on my soapbox about New York city lost a million, lost 17% of its population in 10 years. <laughs> Went from eight million to seven million in ten years. The two censuses, right? Seventy had eight million. Eighty had seven million. So people voted with their feet. Didn't mean that the people who were left behind weren't suff suffering and struggling, and you know, and that the, the uniquely burdened by this circumstance. I think it's a mistake. This this would be the mistake. So yeah, so they didn't get to fifty point, you know, fifty point one percent to win these races, you had shifts, wholesale shifts toward the Republican Party in very blue places everywhere. It wasn't, and so the idea is, was that evanescent? Is that just 2022? Or as was the case with the growing Republican strength in the House of Representatives uh, in the fourth decade of Democratic one-party rule in the House, that it built and built and built and built. If Democrats don't address these matters in some way, what's to say that the Lee Zeldin of 2026 doesn't win when well, Lee this, Zeldin, it, yeah. And well, and they only have two years to do it in states like New York, right? Because those seats are going to be up. The ones that the Republicans took from the Democrats are still vulnerable. Those are not safe seats for those Republicans. And Democrats have an opportunity here, particularly on crime, to do something. I don't think they will because they are ideologically beholden to this idea that crime has systemic root causes that must be first addressed before you can hold individuals accountable for their behavior. I saw this in the debates we had here in D.C. with the criminal code changes, this idea that, well, we can't punish these hapless fools who just happen to be the result of their circumstances. We have to tackle the circumstances, tackle poverty, tackle racism. Meanwhile, people are being slaughtered in the streets and that's just, they shrug over that. People are sick of that. And I do think they have, if we, but who is the tough on crime Democrat? I mean, you can point to Mayor Adams. He hasn't actually done enough, but what national democratic political figure has spoken persuasively about crime in a way that voters would actually say, yeah, that guy. He's not an R, but he's a D and he cares about crime. I mean, Bill, the Bill Clinton welfare thing is an example. The, I mean, there are Democrats who've been able to thread that needle, but I don't know who, certainly nationally, I can't think of a single Democrat who talks tough on crime. Well, we'll have, this is a subject we will be returning to, you know, incessantly. And, but we've, we've run our string for today. Uh, so we will gather again tomorrow. Brave Christina Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.